Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's guest is Regina Louise, the memoirist and motivational speaker whose life story was so compelling that it was made into a lifetime movie, I Am Somebody's Child. So tune in as they discuss her latest book, Permission Granted, and learn what becomes possible when we give ourselves permission to live our best lives. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. 1150 AM KKNW in Seattle, as well as 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. And you can also find the show on iTunes and Podcast One. And a quick disclaimer for those folks in Petaluma that the views expressed here are not necessarily the views of Petaluma Community Access, KPCA Radio, or its board of directors, volunteers, staff, or underwriters. Um, just quick housekeeping, you can find out more about me through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. And I have to jump in for listening or going, what is that noise in the background? <laughs> So please explain, Sonny. Please explain. Currently, I'm coming to you today from. Um, yeah, I know. We will just so we get some context. Like this is the this is the adventure that is our life right now. Um, so we rolled into uh, Michigan. We're on the shores of Lake Michigan and the Great Lakes right now, and we're staying. Um, we have a membership through this thing called Harvest Hosts, where you can stay overnight, just you know, like 24 hours at wineries and breweries and farms and different attractions who participate. Um, and so we're parked in this parking lot, and they have great Wi-Fi. And Chase didn't want to park too close you know because we've got the airstream and the parking you know we, we don't want to keep patrons from getting close enough to their little wine tasting area and so we were trying to debate what was close enough for the wi-fi and right before we went on air of course um we determined i might need to get a little bit closer so i texted him so as the show is introing <laughs> chase is pulling the airstream slowly forward to get closer to the building and the wi-fi so hopefully this will hold out a little better for us <laughs> I love it. I think that's the first time we've ever had that happen, actually, on the air. It's got to be a first for everybody. All right, just move the vehicle a little closer to the building. Come on, put your tinfoil hat on at the same time. Let's get a little closer, everybody. Oh, I know. So anyway, I think that um, I think that we should have good Wi-Fi here Excellent. for the rest of the show. So if you just heard some little creaking and groaning, that is the airstream gently moving okay. forward toward the building while we're broadcasting. Yeah. Thanks, Chase. Uh, absolutely. And Benny, while we got you here, how are you doing? How uh, are things up in Seattle? We're doing pretty good. We're uh, we're going to be approaching. Well, actually, we're already into a heat wave. We're going to see triple digits actually Sunday and Monday. Craziest thing I've ever said. We're actually going to be hotter than Florida and Georgia areas. Like it's, I don't think I've ever said that before, ever. No. Yeah. I mean, is this will this be the first time in recorded history that that Seattle has reached temps over a hundred? Uh, for this year, yes, yeah, so far. Oh, okay, okay, but I mean, like it's it's. Been oh, we've over done it before. Yeah, before. yeah, we've done okay, it before. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. I didn't know. I mean, that's that's a it's a it's, it's pretty ridiculous. high temps for that area. It's ridiculous, but you know what? Uh, stay cool, everybody. Uh, be safe out there, and uh, yeah, keep those fans going. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Benny, it's good to hear from you. And I can't wait to spend uh, First Friday with you here um, in the coming weeks so we can all get caught up on Alessandra's adventures and your adventures and their stream adventures and all of the things. Yeah, hopefully I don't melt away first. <laughs> yeah, please, please try to stay cool enough. So we'll see you next time. <laughs> you got it. Okay, well, so I'm very excited to welcome on today our fantastic guest. Her name is Regina Louise. Um, and so I'll just give you her bio here. And some of you may have actually seen the movie that was based on her life. But um, Regina Louise is the author of Permission Granted. That's the book that we're going to be talking about today. Her best-selling memoirs are Somebody's Someone and Someone Has Led This Child to Believe, uh, uh, both of which were made into the award-winning Lifetime movie, I Am Somebody's Child, the Regina Louise story, which was nominated for a 2020 NAACP Award for Best Director. A summa cum laude graduate of the California Institute of Integral Studies with a master's of fine arts degree, Regina is a Hoffman process teacher, workshop facilitator, and motivational speaker who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her story has been featured in media outlets like NPR's All Things Considered, Good Morning America, The CBS Early Show, The Tavis Smiley Show, and many more. You can find out more about her, her story, as well as this new book, Permission Granted, by visiting www.iamreginalouise.com. I am reginalouise.com. Regina, welcome to the show. Hi, Sunny Joy. Thank you. And I just recognize that your name is power packed with sunniness and joy. <laughs> wow, that's a that was that a big name to live up to, a big experience to live up to. Well, it's funny. It is my given name. That's usually the first question I get asked. And my parents, the second question is, your parents must have been free love and hippies. And then it could not be farther from the truth. Um, but I, I I, was very embarrassed of my name growing up. I wanted, I wanted to be named Kimberly. That was my name of choice. But my mother refused to change the birth certificate. So I did grow into Sunny Joy. And now it, it, I think it fits perfectly for the work that I do. And I see my mom and dad were farther out ahead of me than I could have seen when I was little and not really liking the name. <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, Regina, I know, um, you know, I've done some research on you now um, in preparation for this interview, but I feel like there's so much that precedes what we're about to talk about today. And I'm just curious for folks out there who maybe haven't seen the Lifetime movie or haven't read either of your memoirs, what about your background um, do you feel, would you like to share today that's relevant for our conversation to kind of give people a foundation or a preface um, for what we're going to talk about? Mm, great question. I think what is important to know is I came from a life where I was left to raise myself. It's sort of like what Salman Rushdie says about The Wizard of Oz. It's a story about adults failing to raise and protect children and children being forced to, to raise themselves. So my life is synonymous to that. I, I failed to attach in 30 different foster homes. My life as a adolescent came into, my, my rite of passage into adolescence was defined by living so much of my experience in solitary confinement. And it wasn't until I was an adult 
that I made the connection that myself and Nelson Mandela, for similar reasons on obviously different scales, were in solitary confinement. He on Robben Island and me at the Victor Schools and in Redding, California. So it's just interesting that I've, I've come through some what people would say, you know, incredibly traumatic experiences. And if, for anyone who's listening, who understands what the ACE, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experience Assessment is, out of the 10 possible, you know, uh, score, I, my life as, as I lived it, I scored nine out of 10 ACEs, which basically mm. is a predict, a predictor of the success or failure or, you know, lifespan that I and, and other people who get assessed will have. Yes. And I, I really, um, I learned about that ACE, um, the adverse childhood events scale, um, just several years ago. And I will say for anyone out there who has experienced traumatic events during childhood, if you, it's pretty easy to find this, this, um, on the internet, um, clients who have taken it have found it to be very validating to, to, um, understand better uh, what their childhood and those adverse events have done in terms of affecting them in their their adulthood. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, and you know, Regina, you you wrote in the book that uh, very early on, when I was around 11 years old, I decided that I would not allow my life to be defined by the ill-fated actions of my traumatized and unprotected young mother. And my first thought was, 11 is such a young age for such an awareness and a decision. And, and ultimately, you ended up leaving that, that foster home at age 11. And I'm just curious, where did you get the, the wherewithal, the, the awareness to reach a decision of that magnitude at such a young age? Great question. I believe that decision was always in me. I believe that decision was beat into me. I believe that decision was 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 reflected to me. I believe my very birth was an invitation to step up, step out and in to my right to say no. You don't get to beat me for nothing on your own terms. Like, I can't allow you to hurt me, to hurt my feelings, and just have that be what it is because you decided that. I could not, in good conscience, allow my conscience to be abused, to be defiled, to be decimated, to be erased. I couldn't. 
I wasn't going to allow that to happen. And I didn't. Somebody had to take up for me. And I thought, who better than me? My mother was one of these women, beautiful woman, unprotected, children by this man, that man, I get it. I, I, I really believe that I understand with compassion her plight. But I did not feel it was my responsibility to suffer for the sins of my mother. People saw me, they saw her and her failure and her beauty and her inability to, to be responsible for her life or her children's lives. And so the sins of the mother were cast on to me and it's an interesting experience to be in trouble for something I had not done, to be held accountable for something that I couldn't see, I couldn't feel, there was no tangibility to it. So I was always in trouble, if you will, being held accountable to something that I could never rectify, I could never own, I could never course correct. Yes, and one of the things, Regina, that stood out to me, and this is, again, coming into this book, not knowing your background and then learning as I went through the book and then did some outside research, and you wrote in your dedication, um, well, yes, you wrote in your dedication, um, and to my biological mother, who transitioned during the last few days of my final rewrite in January 2021, not so long ago, um, you were the most unpretentious, unapologetic, life-on-your-own-terms human I've ever met. Your terms were so fierce, they taught me to be the wild thing that could not afford to feel sorry for herself for too long. And for this, I am truly grateful. Thank you for giving me a life worth living, worth examining, and worth transforming into something to write about. Where the hurting ends, the healing begins. Here's to healing the world's hearts. And just even from the little that you've mentioned here on the show so far, um, given your background um, and some of the adverse events and experiences that you had, it seemed when I read that dedication, it takes um, a lot of love and forgiveness to be able to look at the background the way that you have. And I'm just curious, you know, can you speak a little bit to that to to what it took for you to get to a place where you could thank your mother in such a beautiful way in the dedication of this book. Mm. Yes. So I have always imagined that the day I would hear of my mother's death, because I knew the only way I would hear about it is in a roundabout way, you know, although I, I knew her name, I clearly was loved by her to the best of her ability for a certain amount of time. Otherwise I just wouldn't be as intact as I am now. And I recognized that one day while, while standing on stage and, and it, 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 it appeared to me that 
wow, the therapy I had had up to that moment just kicked in when my therapist had said, Gina, somebody loved you once. There's no way you'd be this intact if they didn't. And mm. then I, I go onto stage and, you know, people often want to know my story, which is, you know, what I was hired to do. I would say, oh, you know, I am in a process of living the transformative truth that, oh my God, my parents actually loved one another or believe they did when they consummated their attraction to one another. And I am the result of that love. So to shift from confusion, victim, you know, to wait, 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 let's slow this down. I was conceived out of incredible passion, teenage passion, call it what you want. I'm going to call it passion. Mm -hmm. And here I am. So from that point on, I began to consider, oh, yes, I know how to attach. I know how to love that had to happen in the very early days of my birth and the very early months. So let's, you know, jettison forward to January. I am a Hoffman process teacher, one of the hats I wear. And on the last day <clears throat> of the Hoffman process, the Thursday before, <clears throat> pardon me, our students leave Friday, there's a experience where we say and within the next year go to your parents wherever they are in the world and just tell them you love them have that moment well i've been repeating that for five years well this year i thought i'm going to go and i'm going to reconcile my books have been out my movies have been come on <laughs> you know yeah. and i hoped she would at least try to reach out something something and you know we had very intermittent connection so anyway I had said okay this is the year and, and you know and then January 15th came and I received a urgent email from one of my estranged siblings estranged for nearly 50 years and wow. yeah and because of the movie, people from my past had been reaching out and I've been pretty slow to, to trust all that. But yeah. anyway, I trusted my estranged brother and he just said, mom is in Seton Hospital, room, boom, 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 not expected to make it through the weekend. And I'm thinking, is this like, uh, 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 is this real? Yeah. And then I thought, wait, it, is it his mother or is it my mother? Like whose mother, you know, who's privileged here? And yeah. clearly it was him. And I recognized that and I met my aloneness around that and my emptiness around that and my broken heart around that. I met it with the good enough mother in me. So otherwise I would not have been able, I would have been in competition. I would have been jaded and angry and I would have been vindictive. Let's keep it real. <laughs> but yeah. because I have done the work to experience 
and live the consequences of what it feels like to be completely disconnected from my own heart, I knew that the only way I could do what was being asked is to do so from the goodness of my own heart, which will lead into my definition of love a little later. But I made the call and I didn't know what to say, but I allowed the truth of my common humanity and her common humanity to, 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 to show up. And she was in the COVID-19 unit on a ventilator and she had a nurse and the, the ventilator kept a certain kind of cadence in the background. And, you know, I had, I had never called her mom. I always called her by her first name, Maddie. And I couldn't, I, you know, we, we, we didn't have enough shared experiences in the present or the recent present to pick up where we left off. But my, my instincts said, sing, sing to her. And I just sang, I can show you the world shining, shimmering, splendid. Tell me, princess, when did you last just let your heart desire? And because she's going to a whole new world. Mm. I, too, will be in a whole new world. And then the nurse said, tell her you love her. And I just said, sweet girl, sweet woman, child, I love you. Mm. We are we are clean. There's nothing. There's nothing you owe me. There's nothing you didn't do for me. You did the best you could with what you had. Oh, sorry. That's sorry. okay. Benny will dump it. <laughs> You're so beautiful. You're so beautiful. Yeah. And then I, I hung up. And then I began the process of, of imagining my own grieving and for the first time in my life I didn't feel shame that something was wrong with me I didn't feel guilt that I had done something wrong for my mother to leave to go what I for the first time in my life experienced is a letting go in a righteous way of letting go meaning and I had practiced it my entire life every day of my life was had some thread of disenfranchised grief ambiguous loss about my mother and so it was finally my moment to to have that rite of passage to let her go on on the terms of of goodness and love and light and it was so dignified and i recognized that dignity and i i allowed that in and it was the first time i've lost pretty much everybody in my life and I lost them that day at 11 that I made a decision it's either my 
mental health, my my heart, or it's they're gonna I'm gonna die. I'm gonna I won't make it. I I just won't because there's nothing here to hold me. Mm, I'm getting emotional. Yeah. So. Whew, so, I. I took what was private and I made it public. And for the first time, I had to, I had to rest a photo of my, of my own mother from my brother who, it was difficult for him to give up anything of her to me and I knew it wasn't personal. I knew that he had an allegiance to her and who knows the narrative that existed between he and her in relationship to me. Later, of course, I learned and and it was nothing that any child or woman should ever know or hear. But um, I, I had a photo and it was the only photo I ever had. And I posted it and the outpouring of compassion because children, as a child, I didn't get that. Most children in foster care do not get the empathy, the compassion, and oftentimes are held accountable for the sins of, of those who have offended them, ironically enough. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was the first time in my life I, I didn't get the casseroles, you know, that are customary and, and, and all of that. But what I received was a public acknowledgement and flowers, you know, and just this being seen, I, I, I feel it was the first time I was seen for, in, in a righteous way, in a way as a daughter, you know, should be seen, in my opinion, if, if, if I value the rites of passages that are inherently a part of being human. And it was, it was profound to have that kind of a rite of passage around loss around grieving, around dignifying the fact that yes. I had a mother. So, yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing um, so openly and honestly um, about something that is um, quite recent um, and Oh, going there with us and sharing this with us here on the show today. Um, and, it, and it then to me begs the question here, um, of course, the book, the recent book that just came out, Permission Granted, and I'll read the full title here, uh, Permission Granted, um, kick asterisk asterisk strategies to bootstrap your way to unconditional self-love. <laughs> That's awesome. I love your inventiveness. Thank oh, you. <laughs> no, no, that was all you, Regina. We were, as I will share with the audience, you know, we've got FCC regulation. Gina's book is uh, Kick Butt or Kick Asterisk Asterisk. And, and Regina said, why don't you just say Kick Asterisk Asterisk? Like, that's the perfect way to say it. So, 
<laughs> that's all you <laughs> or the accommodation the willingness oh <laughs> you know those fcc rules we gotta abide by them yes. so yeah but i um i my question is you talk there are several well let me just preface this by saying the book is is comprised of 14 of these strategies to bootstrap your way to unconditional self-love a couple of which have to do with inner child work and in your inner child named little red yeah um <laughs> yes and i'm i'm had you not learned how to be that mother to yourself that your biological mother was not able or was not what could not be for various reasons um if you hadn't been able to do that inner child work to get to that place of unconditional self-love i mean how what how would your life have been different mm, i would most likely be forever moored in a psychological, emotional, spiritual estrangement from myself. I would be lost. Yeah. I would be lost in the trauma of, of, of being frozen. I would be psychologically, emotionally probably physically, it would definitely somatically show up, no doubt, frozen and forever, forever like a, like a prehistoric fossil or, you know, insect or, or animal frozen in time and then found, you know, billions of years later, I would have been frozen, moored in what's called arrested development yeah and tell us about the importance of working with our inner children and 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 in fact naming them just like you named yours little red um what do people need to know about the inner child work Mm. one of the most salient takeaways i have for one of my favorite therapist that I engaged with, Lainey Demetria. One day she said, Gina, it is in relationships where we're wounded. It is in relationships where we will be healed. And that, that woke me up. This idea that It's in relationships that these profound traumas happen. And then I also read a article once about, I believe it was uh, gorillas and how when one gorilla offends another, the Although all the other gorillas rally around the one who was hurt, nothing, nothing can change or overturn or shift that hurt in that gorilla with the exception of the one who actually offended the gorilla. So it's when that, yeah, when that gorilla can go to the one who offended and repair the tear, 
that is the only time that gorilla can feel a part of the fold once more. And that, that got me to thinking, well, what happens when that other gorilla refuses or can't make the repair? What then? And so for me, it invited this inquiry into, well, what if I can connect to what is good in me? And if I can connect to what is good in me, as opposed to having to wait for someone else on their terms to make that repair, because if they choose not to, wow, they could really control and manipulate and, and do damage psychologically to me. So, but what if I could go into the goodness of my own heart, the, the good enough mother, the adult in me that clearly knows how to to do this life what would that look like and then you know i didn't know this was called internal family systems when i began it but i stood in the power of what i now understand to be my adult and i would scoop up my own broken heart and speak to it and whisper to it and hold it and i began to feel the sensation of being released from the emptiness, from the want. And, you know, I did not understand at the time that that was what I was engaged in, internal family systems work, as well as deep compassion and empathy work, and inner child work. That was one of the things that stood out to me so much is when you were going through the book and, and when when um, Regina provides these strategies, these are real practical, applicable strategies. And you're walking through what you do in your own life. And you, of course, you share some of your past and also present. But I noticed you speak to yourself with such compassion and with such kindness and the kinds of words that you would want to speak to a child in an ideal situation. I just, I, it just stood out to me, you really live it to give it on this front. And I'm, I'm curious if you could give um, uh, listeners some examples of what this actually looks like in your life. What does it look like to be that good mother or good enough mother um, to the inner child? Or what, uh, th- what kind of self-compassion, unconditional self-love um, words and examples might you be able to share with us? Right. So let's just back up a little bit and And I think where I'd like to start is the idea of what love is. So I, when I, when I began interacting with this buzzword called self-love, I was like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. I'm like, from, from, from whose perspective is this being constructed? Is this being constructed from, you know, white middle class structuring? Is this being constructed from, you know, black middle class? Uh, Who is, how is this getting privileged, this notion of self-love? Yeah. What about those of us who were loved in a traumatic, terrifying way? Do I really want to met that kind of love back at myself? 
do I want to, do I even know what self-love is? So for me, it was an invitation to go into deep praxis, right? To do what the late great Paolo Fieri said is to, to grapple, to go in, to, to be reflexive, to take a concept, a construct and relate with it in this way in which I can rest a, a understanding that becomes a, a way of being, a way of living for me. So I needed to deeply understand what the heck is self-love? Where does it originate from? Yeah. And the only truth I could come up with is it originates with how I learned to love. And then I go back to this other study that says love is state bound. We learn how to love in the particular states in which we find ourselves. The okay. study is based on a group of people who the researchers got really plastered. They, they got them super, super, super inebriated. And then, yeah, yeah, this is the study. And so they got them super inebriated. And then after they were sober, they went back. They recorded everything that happened when they were inebriated. And then they played it to them while they were sober. And of course, nobody ever, they couldn't say, I said that. They couldn't deny it because there it was. So from that study, it concluded that love is state bound, depending upon the state in which you learned it. So I'm thinking, ah, and it's unconscious, it's implicit, right? Okay. Or it infers that. So it's like, I'm scared to love myself from the way in which I learned to love myself. Like the way I learned to love myself is to abandon myself. So for me, love, you know, like this whole thing about the love languages, no, baby, that may be nice and great for everybody who's completely transformed their childhood traumas. But for those of us who are, are, are seeking to, to better and deeper understand that, yeah. I can't trust this notion of self-love unless, of course, I can define it for myself. So with that said, I will also share that I work, one of the hats I wear, as I said, is a Hoffman Process teacher. And there are oftentimes I stand in front of the room and, you know, I say my definition of love from a Hoffman perspective. Love is the flowing, the rendering, the outpouring uh, from the heart of emotional goodness first to ourselves and then to others. So I was kind of like, oh, huh, that's interesting. But it never quite dawned on me. I, it, it didn't, I couldn't claim that necessarily as my truth until I could claim it as my truth. Yeah. And then came the day that I was like, wait a minute, if... And because I love science of mind, you know, the late, great Ernest Holmes, and the, he has devotees such as Michael Beckwith, Wayne Dyer, Louise Hay, Ayanna Van Zandt. So those are the luminaries that, that have paved the way for the kind of thinking that I prefer. And so yeah. I was like, wait a minute, if love is the outpouring, rendering, flowing from the heart of emotional goodness first to ourselves, that means, whoa, I am that site where love is at mm. any given point. I am the site 
and it is my own heart. And so if, if love is the outpouring, the outpouring, so that means it has to be inside in order to go out. So if love mm-hmm. is the outpouring, if it's the flowing, again, site-specific, if it is the rendering, again, site-specific from the heart of emotional goodness, whoa, to the self first, that means it's an inside job. Yeah. That means this is starts with me. I am the site. I am that fire hydrant. I am the source, right? The yeah. cause, right? Of emotional goodness. So that means I am, I came hardwired with emotional goodness. Mm. So for me to accept that as the definition of love for me, I accept that wholeheartedly. I adopt that. I am initiated, then self-love is an inside job. And the emptiness and the aloneness that we oftentimes default to is when we forget that the source of our goodness does not lie in the hands of a lover, of a mother, a father, a spouse, a child, but in us. And so with, with, in me. And so to see that, that means I, 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 my, I'm a mother. I know that the love that I have for my child didn't happen simply because I looked at my child. No, it had to first spring from within me. And Mm. so that gave birth to me understanding my good enough adult. Beautiful. So the title of the book, the main title is Permission Granted. And I'm curious, what was the first or initial permission that you granted yourself that was really impactful? Mm, somebody read the book. Look at you, Miss Deep. I'm going to call you Sunny Joy with depth. I'll yes. take it. Thank Sunny you. Yeah, Sunny Joy Deeply. Okay. Okay. Well, as far back as I can remember, I will say that my relationship with my own emotional goodness, with my own permission was, I was, a, I was a, maybe I was eight years old and I had just left Sunday school and we, in our little procession, you know, boys and girls in line. We we traveled from the Sunday school room to the sanctuary or theater of the spiritual, I like to call it. Yeah. And I sat in the front row because that's my personality. I, I need to feel what's happening. And so I knew that as a child, I need to feel what's happening here. And uh, and I need to I need to I need to see with my hearing and, and 
he, and, and hear with my eyes. That's kind of how I'm wired. So I need a close proximity to, to, the, to the site of what was happening. And the reverend, hands gesticulating beautifully, wildly, says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe it shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I am certain that that was the moment that my spirituality was born in terms of my own consciousness and awareness of there being, there being that I was in, I I couldn't say that then, but I felt that I coexisted with something within something that was very powerful. And I believed that day that, that God was so generous, so benevolent, and that God was not afraid to give away his only child. So that meant that my mother, my mother was kind of doing what God did. And it Mm. helped me, it helped me put what was happening in perspective. Oh my God, she gave me away because she believed that she could, she believed. So I took pride in in, in the fact that my mother gave me away because she felt that I would be okay. I would make it through the world. And I believe that God gave his son away. And so the, I, I then believe that m- m- that gave birth to m- the power of believing, my relationship with believing and it opened up another realm for me, another portal for me to to be in the world and and go to when I needed to, which is belief, faith. And then I have always been I, I've always been deeply, deeply affected by the song "O Holy Night," and. It doesn't matter who sings it, you know, Ella, Whitney, Christina Aguilera, Jennifer Hudson. It does not matter, Celine Dion, anybody sings that song. Something in me answers that song. It's like spirit recognizing itself in that song. So one day I listened to it. I listened to it throughout the year and you know, it doesn't have to just be Christmas. And one day I heard the song and it said, uh, low lay the world in sin and never till he appeared and the soul felt it's more I recognize that when the soul feels its worth is when spirit recognizes itself. And I recognized myself that I am not separate from all that is. 
I am not separate from spirit. And the day that I left, the day that I said, you do not get to beat me ever again. I broke the epigenetic curse, the epigenetic history. I changed the epigenetic fingerprints of brutality left over from slavery that was written within the central nervous system of my of my uh, ancestors. And I knew that what I was stepping into, every single person on this planet who has had to pull their consciousness, their souls, pull the reins back from sins of believing that they're less than the sin of believing that they're not worthy, the sin of believing that race, creed, color, religious beliefs make them less than or even superior to that degree. I knew that when I, when I understood the depth of and the soul felt its worth, that that day when I was 11, that day is when my soul became a conscious entity that heightened my hearing, my seeing. A different kind of intelligence came online, and I, I call it a spatial intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the, when you were talking about that line from Oh Holy Night and the soul felt its worth, um, I think that was in uh, one of my favorite chapters of the book, um, strategy number nine, allow your spirit to triumph. And in that same chapter, you talk about the journey of the lifetime feature film that was made about your life. And you write that from the moment when I began writing my first book about growing up in foster care and the follow-up book about your graduate, which was your graduate thesis detailing my adult adoption by the beloved counselor I met while living in a children's shelter, I knew that a film version had to happen. I felt this truth deeply. And I know we've just got a few minutes left in the show, but Regina, I'm, I'm, I, one of the things that stands out, you said that, that once you're, you were awakened at that age and, and there was a different kind of intelligence that came online you had these, these dreams that were just beyond any kind of dreams that I've ever experienced in my life. You had these knowings, clearly you're a very intuitive and highly sensitive being, um, how can you speak a little bit about that knowingness that that this, this film was going to happen and that even though it took, I think what I heard you say in an interview was 16 years from end to end when it was finally said and done, that how do we, this is a really long way of asking, how can we all tap into our own soul intelligence, that knowing that kept you going, that, that kept your path unfolding ahead of you? Oh, what a deep 
question. In two two, two minutes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so if we go back to if we go back to me believing when I decided to believe based on John three sixteen when I, when I so so that act alone. I received information. Okay. I, I, and from being aware, I was aware and I received information. And over time, I developed a relationship with, with awareness. That, was, that awareness always gave way to insights. And the insights to me with it, with, is, 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 is akin to emotional signatures. And what else is interesting is to be familiar, to know is to be, is to, to know is, is to have this idea of familiarity with something, right? So when we think about reclaiming, oh, okay, so we're going back to that which once was. When we talk about rebirth, oh, we're talking about going back to that which came before the current birth. So I recognize this relationship causal between the soul felt its worth believing that there was a knowing that came before me and that knowing that comes from before me is the same knowing that knows the right time for daffodils to show up and nature, the right time for the honeybee to make honey, the right time for a woman's, this incredible world within a world, a woman's cycle, menstrual cycle, to be in accordance in that which knows, right? It's, it's, it's yeah. to look in nature and to see the emotional signature, the, 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 the spiritual fingerprints that affirm that which is familiar, which is, I know you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Regina, that brings us to the end of our hour. Um, this has been such a beautiful conversation and I so appreciate gosh, how you show up. It is, it's extraordinary. <laughs> um, so I've been joined here today by Regina Louise. She's the author of a brand new book, Permission Granted. Um, find out more at her website, IamReginaLouise.com. The website is IamReginaLouise.com. Regina, thank you so much for having been my guest today. You're welcome. And also I want people to hit me up on Instagram. <sighs> The real Regina Louise on Instagram because I love Instagram. Okay. And also my website is being updated to accommodate all the deliciousness that's in this book. So have patience with me. <laughs> will do. And on that note, we will come to the end of our hour. You have been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. And uh, thanks, Benny, for running the board in Seattle. And thank you, Jeff and Petaluma. See you next week, everyone.